powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his granary. With the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod, the ruler, who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all by shutting up John in prison. Now when the people, all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the, uh, the heaven was opened. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. Uh, so I'm sure that uh, you all had, uh, have thought about this before or asked the question, maybe been prompted by someone to ask it or, or came to it yourself. Uh, but it's a, a simple and straightforward question. Uh, who is Herodias? No, that's not the one. Uh, why was Jesus baptized? I mean, we don't have to unpack the whole doctrinal zimis around baptism to see the basic problem. You know, what, what is baptism according to John? What's John saying about uh, what b- baptism achieves? Well, last week, John made it pretty clear. It, it, you could say, as some have, it's an external sign of an internal transformation. You could say it's a bodily or sacramental means of transformation, but for all the differences we have about baptism and whatever everyone thinks it achieves, the core thing that baptism has to do is what? Is, according to John create metanoia. The point is that the reason for baptism is that we are given a new mind. Uh, uh, The old mind uh, is uh, is put aside and we have a new mind that focuses on uh, in terms of our thoughts, in terms of our ways of viewing the world, our habits, practices, everything about us. We're given a new mind and a new person that orients us towards and directs us towards uh, being more like Jesus. And we've been talking about it for a while now. So you know, metanoia is not just, it's more than saying sorry. It's more than asking for repentance. It's about, you know, Paul, Paul kind of says it really eloquently later. It's to take on or to put on the mind of Christ. Uh, metanoia is a fundamental transformation in who you are, how you think about the world, and how you engaged it so that your mind is, is kind of more in line with uh, and works a little bit more like the, the person uh, of Christ and the mind of Christ. So, why is Jesus baptized? Because, I mean, like, by definition, has the mind of Christ, no? There's, uh, there's this whole strand of thinking that goes back all the way into the origins of the church, uh, a guy named Origen, funnily enough, that, uh, uh, that tried to solve this problem. And the way he solved this problem is he said, well, Jesus is a human like any other human. And then at the baptism... Uh, Jesus is essentially made God. Divinity is bestowed upon Jesus in the river Jordan. And a lot of people thought that for a long time, and it solves the problem of why Jesus is baptized. But like, theologically, that thing's a hot mess. You know, it means like, Jesus is not really God. Uh, Only God the Father has the power and authority to make Jesus God. It means that Jesus uh, Christ is not the eternally existent Logos really messes with the whole idea of the Trinity. Like, it's a really bad solution to say Jesus was not God until the baptism condemned his heresy. And, you know, all kinds of problems with Scripture and, and, and scriptural reading that. So if you're not going to take the whole 
Jesus becomes God here route, which I advise you not to. Heresy uh, is bad. Uh, how do you explain why Jesus is baptized? So uh, already has the mind of Christ. Uh, if it was for the remission of sins, we imagine that Jesus was also by virtue of being simultaneously human and divine uh, sinless. If it was for cleansing from unrighteousness, uh, baptism wouldn't have accomplished anything. Jesus is the paragon of and model of righteousness. And you don't want to say that Jesus had sin because that creates all kinds of theological problems too. And the problems just start to get worse once you ask this question, why is Jesus baptized? Because not only are there these problems with, you know, how you think about the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, but then like all of a sudden there's all these, even John sees it, right? Like John says, I am unfit to untie the thong of his sandal. He baptizes with spirit and fire. I baptize with water. By what right does John have to baptize Jesus if Jesus is God, if the power of baptism is bound up with who God is? What, is, what in the Sam Hill is going on here? <laughs> so let, let's start with where we were last week. Let's start with, uh, you know, the lectionary kind of has us looping back here. So like the way the lectionary breaks it up, there's a sermon by John about baptism, and then there's the baptism of Jesus. And as you saw, we kind of overlapped on the parts of John's sermon. But last week, John made this like what I think is an outrageous claim. And, you know, I, I don't think we make a big enough deal about it. I was certainly in the camp of not doing that. Uh, and the claim was that uh, when, when, when John says that God is able to make out of these rocks the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, he's talking about those memorial stones that we talked about last week, which were both a, a memory of God leading Israel out of Egypt from Exodus into exile and then leading the return to the promised land. And, you know, the, the interesting thing about that story is, especially if you uh, read how it's told in Joshua, if it really is a reference, if John is referencing those memorial stones, is that, as we talked about last week, God asked Joshua to pick up these stones that are at the bottom of the river Jordan and to place them on the other side. And then Joshua 4 has this fairly elaborate explanation that all the men who had heard the promise that God had made to Israel and who had been circumcised and who knew about uh, the relationship between uh, God and Israel in relatively intimate ways, Joshua 4 said they had all died wandering in the desert. And so uh, when uh, they get to the boundaries of the river Jordan, God says, Joshua, put these stones up. And then uh, when they get onto actual, the actual land of the promised land, remember what else God says? God says, get a flint and circumcise them. Because all the guys who were wandering out in the desert had also not been circumcised. And so here we have uh, the nation of Israel literally being created out of, out of stones. Like, you know, it's not the same Israel that was given the promise. It's a new Israel. That new Israel is circumcised and, and, and is made kind of up out of, out of nothing. And so John is saying that in baptism, he's, we are able to, God is able to make a new Israel and to, to uh, I don't know, to, uh, the thing I love about thinking about it that way is that um, but it's offered to all of us this possibility of, of exodus from sin and uh, of, of returning home from exile. And it, you know, I, I, I love that idea. But, you know, the Israel that goes into the Holy Land is not the same Israel that came out of Egypt. That's the point. That's what, that's the, what John is saying here. And, uh, you know, like these days, if you run in the circles that a lot of us do, one of the biggest problems people love to talk about is identity. Uh, you know, we talk about this in terms of like 
ethnic identity, uh, call it identity politics. We, are we ask a lot of questions about who we are and what makes us who we are and what are the implications of who we are. And that whole notion is built on understanding what is the principle or idea that creates an identity and continuity around an identity. And that's what John has his finger on there about the nation of Israel. The interesting thing about the nation of Israel is that it's difficult for us to fully understand what the identity of the nation of Israel is, given that the Israel that left Egypt was not the same Israel as the one that entered into the Holy Land. And so I believe the reason why uh, the, John is inspired to refer to that here is because what God is asking us to do in baptism is to think carefully about this idea of identity. If you want to kind of philosophically nerd out on it, there's this old uh, problem in philosophy called Theseus's ship. Okay, so Theseus's ship. Theseus was this guy that like helped a bunch of Athenian youth escape Crete, and he got in the ship, and they rode across the uh, the bay or whatever. And so, uh, in order to memorialize Theseus, the people of Athens tried to make a museum out of his ship. And so, if you went to the harbor in Athens, you'd see Theseus's ship. The problem is, is the old days and Things were made out of wood, and so the ship would rot. And so as the ship rotted, people would pull out the rotted planks and they'd put in new planks. And one day, some you know, intrepid citizen of Athens says, holy cow, there's not a single piece of wood left in the ship that was from when Theseus drove the ship, or whatever you do with the ship, piloted the ship, etc. And so the question is, is the ship made up of all new materials the same Theseus's ship? Does it maintain identity if it's made up of all kinds of different stuff. And like, there's a similar problem with your body, like, you know, your cells replicated every seven to 10 years, although apparently there's some, some cells that stay around forever, whatever. But like, this problem of what makes you the same, what is it that is the idea or thread of identity that runs through that defines who you are and how you understand yourself is a really fascinating theological and philosophical problem. And the, the formal version of that law, if you want to write it down, is A is equal to A, and A does not equal not A. So what that means is, you are equivalent with yourself, and what makes you you is that you are different from other things, B, C, Z, etc. So you're a human and not a duck, not a rabbit, etc. You're Brian and not, uh, I don't know, Sonia, and uh, you, know, you can make all the individual differences. That's, that's how we think about identity. It's some principle or thread that holds things together, but the more we put pressure on it, the more difficult it is to understand exactly what gives us identity across time if we're not the same cells or the same person or if we've been changed by our context, etc. See, it all depends on how you define what makes up, for example, the identity of Israel. If the identity of Israel, it's, hey, it's this group of people, and then all of them die in the desert, it's not the same Israel that shows up on the other side. And so the real question here, at least I think, is if we want to understand this more complex question, remember, why is it that Jesus gets baptized? We have to think very carefully about this question of identity. So the question of Jesus' baptism is, who is it that be, is being baptized, and what is it that's being achieved? John says, or Luke says, has John says, saying uh, in verse 16, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now let's, let's work out this idea about identity by saying, I don't know, we're, we're wheat, okay? So we are, we, in this analogy, we are wheat. You, or, if you have another grain that you like a lot more, like if there's a gluten issue or something, you can pick whatever grain it is that you want. But you're, you're a grain that needs to be threshed. 
And so like, if you understand yourself as a grain that needs to be threshed, like there's the part of you that's like the actual grain of whatever wheat or quinoa or I don't know, whatever it is. And then there's like all this other extra stuff, right? And so uh, the weird thing about thinking about this analogy of, of wheat is that that chaff and the other stuff around it doesn't really belong to who you are in that analogy. In other words, God needs to thresh that away and to burn it. But the beautiful thing about this analogy is this, that what it suggests is that when you go through this process of threshing, you are not made less by subtracting the chaff. You are made a more perfect version of yourself by that process. That's the beautiful thing that's being suggested here, is that what our identity is, is something that is given to us by God. And that the process of of life, the things that we go through, really, ultimately, what is he talking about? The process of metanoia is this. If we say being given a new mind, like if you tell most of your friends that aren't really involved in the whole uh, Christian worldview type thing, you're like, hey, I lost my old mind. They'd be like, that's really, you're not the same person anymore. That's really sad for you. You know, but what, what John is saying is you need to lose your old mind. You need to lose your old identity. You need to be given a new identity and a new mind and a new way of thinking. That's the point of metanoia. And the beautiful thing about the analogy, and we also saw it in the series Trey did before, whether the issue is threshing or refining metal or any of those things, the point of how we Christian folk ought to think about identity is this, that when we go through the process of threshing or refining or any of those things, we are not made a lesser version of ourselves by losing some parts of our identity. We are made a fuller and truer and more perfect, more beautiful version of ourselves by losing some part of our identity. That the whole point is for you to become who you really are and who you always have been. One of the radical elements of Christian thought is that this, that we think that in a fallen state, you are not a comfortable identity that needs to be affirmed and accepted for who you are. You are in a fallen state, an imperfect version of what you are intended to be. You are, uh, you are not at the end towards which you were directed. We talk about this idea of teleology, being a, moving towards a perfect or, or an ideal end. And the, the point of how we think about it is though you need to love yourself because you're made in the image of God and God made you beautiful and amazing and unique and all those things, that whoever we are, whatever I, our identity is, that there are some part of it that has to be burned away so that we can be made a more perfect version of who it is that God tends us to be. And that's a profoundly uncomfortable idea for modern folks. It is, because we want, you know, acceptance. We want safe spaces. We want uh, the tree of trust. We want things that say, however you are right now and whatever your makeup is, uh, we fully and wholly and perfectly endorse it in its totality. And that is totally right and also totally wrong. It's totally wrong in the sense that God intends us to be a person that has the mind of Christ. It's right in the sense that the love that we ought to have for ourselves because God loves us and the love that we have to have for others is ought to be full and overwhelming and complete. But the way we think about self-acceptance in my mind is a little bit backwards. We love ourselves by making ourselves uh, oriented towards the person of Jesus so, so, such that we can become the thing that we have always already been, uh, that if you smell what the gospel is cooking, 
looking here, the problem is that not simply that we accept ourselves, but we allow ourselves to be winnowed. We allow our chaff to be burned away. And the thing is, in the fallen state, you're actually not yourself. You're in a state of misidentification, but in the state of redemption, you are made more like what God intended you to be. It's a beautiful paradox, but Chris is not equal to Chris, but rather current Chris is chaffy, unwinnowed Chris and not identical with the Chris that God intends. But the process of metanoia and the process of redemption is that I made more perfectly, more excellently, more fully the Chris that God intended to be me to be when that chaff is burned away. It's a beautiful, beautiful understanding of what identity means that you, what it means is you are a person for whom God had an intention and a love and a direction from the foundation of the universe. That what it is that makes up you, that the things that make you unique, that the things that represent you were things that were intended by God from the very beginning of time. And when we think about this question of identity, the problem is that we human beings tend to think about this question of identity in super simplistic ways. And like, you know, I'm always kind of saying there's, you know, like there, there's this vision of, of God and who God is that is beyond our language and beyond our concepts. And so we can only kind of get a whiff of it or see it really briefly. But there's at least two ways that we get this question of identity wrong. So the first one is when we think about identity, we think about it as a problem of singular individuals. We think it is like about me or about you or the things that you have to do or the things that I have to do. And God doesn't typically think in the scale of a singular individuals. God also thinks in a kind of unit of, uh, I don't know, nation people, groups. So one of the things that's happening in baptism that relates to the identity of Jesus is that God is not simply staging baptism as the baptism of Jesus as an individual, but that God is also thinking about the nation of or the group of folks uh, who are Israel. So God is thinking in a different scale than we are. The second thing, and this is the really hard one and the really interesting one, and I want to call it, for those of you who've seen the picture before, this is the duck rabbit problem. Everybody seen the duck rabbit? It's like, you know, you look at it one way, it's a duck. You look at it one way, it's a rabbit. I showed it to Gabe today, and he was like, I, what, that's a rabbit? And I'm like... It actually looks like a duck, because if you said it was a rabbit, the ears are actually bent like a duck. Right. But, like, nobody realized that it's actually literally a duck. Now, here's the thing, okay? <laughs> the beautiful thing about the duck-rabbit problem is that we can see the duck when it's pointed out to us. We can see the rabbit when it's pointed out to us. But once we see the categories of duck and rabbit, it's really hard to see it as the simultaneous duck-rabbit. Because human beings have this tendency when we think about identity to reduce things to categories. So we can see the duck and we can see the rabbit, but it's very hard for us to see the duck-rabbit. And the funny thing is, once you have those categories, duck or rabbit, it's really difficult to see that thing as it is. It's difficult to see its dual or its multiple identity. That's the second area where how God thinks about identity is different from us. God thinks in bigger units than just individuals, and God sees identity as multiple. The miracle of Jesus, the stumbling block, is that Jesus's identity is chock full of this duck-rabbit problem. Fully human, fully God. The child of Adam and a perfect new Adam, a new Israel, in fact. A singular individual and a nation, a nation and a temple. All these things are present in Jesus' identity. So when we get to the end of Luke's account of the baptism, what do we see? Now, when all the people were baptized, when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, heaven was open and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, 
You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Now, it's hard for us to see everything that's going on here. But Jesus has just come up out of the water at nearly the same place, I imagine, where the nation of Israel had first crossed back into the promised land. Jesus emerges from that water, maybe within sight of the place where Joshua had put up those memorial stones. And what, what happened to the Jesus that had, or what happened to the Israel that had entered uh, the new, the, the Holy Land? What happened to that Israel that had put up those memorial stones? Well, things didn't go very well for him. Occupied by a political power, the temple would eventually be raised. They're in rough shape in human and moral and spiritual terms. Herod was running the show. Caiaphas wouldn't exactly, like on any rational measure of how the new Israel that had fared by entering into the promised land, it had utterly and totally failed. But Jesus is redoing Israel's emergence in baptism. That when Jesus rises out of that river, that when Jesus rises out of that water, he is establishing not just a new Israel, but a new, new Israel. A new Israel that could perfectly fulfill the demand that it follow God and have the mind of God. This is a divine redo where Jesus, in being baptized, is reconsecrating and reconnecting the new Israel, which includes all of us, to God, reconciling us all to God. So Jesus is taking on a divine redo for Israel to fulfill the promise of a nation that will enter the Holy Land and stay. That's why I believe it says in Luke 21, all the people were baptized. And when Jesus had also been baptized, he was praying. Everyone is baptized. Jesus is baptized. Jesus is the kind of ultimate fulfillment summation of the, the baptisms that went before. What does the new, new Israel Jesus do when he emerges from the water? He connects himself to immediately to God the Father in praying. And he is grateful for what has been done here. And he is reestablishing a relationship with God the Father on behalf of Israel and on behalf of all of us. It's the duck rabbit problem raised to the highest level. Here is God and man, Israel and individual, Israel, new Israel, new, new Israel, and not Israel at all, all coming together to utterly fulfill the promise that is God. And what is Jesus doing as the representative of the new, new nation of Israel when he comes out of that water? Is he then the one who is the representative of a nation, the representative of humans, or is he God himself leading us through those waters, leading us against death and destruction into baptism? Which one is it? All of it. Duck rabbit. That is the point of that God can make and raise up a nation from stones, that God in Jesus Christ is making everything right again by reconciling God to humans in his person. By going into that water ahead of us and for us and with us and after us. A voice calls out from heaven. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And there's a beautiful set of duck rabbits here. God's words recall the psalm, Psalm 2, that the Jewish people would have used to crown a new king. So God adopts the monarch as God's son. Psalm 2 says, you are my son and today I have become your father. It is a beautiful recognition by God the Father that Jesus is the new singular individual king of Israel. But it also recalls Isaiah 42.1, the first of the suffering servant songs that uh, address 
Israel's vocation that uses a specific individual to talk about what is the purpose of the nation of Israel. And, and the first of those songs begins with what? Here is my servant in whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. The recognition of Jesus, the son in whom God is well pleased, is not just a coronation of an individual king, but it is the recognition that Jesus is the fulfillment and perfection of the very nation of Israel, king and subject, God and human, individual and nation, duck rabbit. Amen. Uh, Questions, talk, discussion? If you haven't seen the duck rabbit, you have to go home and look at it. <laughs> All right, uh, no comments, prayers of the people. Questions? Prayers of the people? Prayers of the people. Yes. Absolutely. Okay, good. <laughs> Let's pray. God, we, uh, we thank you for today. I thank you for Resurrection Church. I thank you for every person that you brought here and just ask that um, our hearts, our minds, and our, 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 our spirits, our very souls, our bodies, everything about us is open to listening to and being pliant towards and, and following the places where you lead us. Um, Help us to be both as individuals and as a church just exactly what it is that you intend us to be and nothing more and and nothing less. Um, I thank you for uh, everyone here, especially on a a birthday out there, and just ask that you uh, bless the year ahead and um, that that your hand and your providence and your will and your joy and your peace are manifest in the life of each one of us. We pray for the folks who are uh, sick that we've been praying for for a good while, uh, and, and for uh, for folks in our congregation that are also dealing with uh, medical issues, we just ask for your hand and your strength and your providence and your healing and your presence and all those things. And uh, specifically, Lord, we lift up Jean and just ask uh, for your uh, your endurance, uh, for for your uh, that in the midst of some very tough times that there is your joy. We pray for your healing. We pray uh, for your presence. We pray that you uh, strengthen and uplift and uphold and, and be with not only Jean, but Brian and Sonia and the girls and, and everyone and just uh, make it apparent to us, Lord, what we can do to, to be agents of your mercy and, and your peace. We pray uh, for all the places around the world that are suffering from the brokenness of the cosmos, for folks in Australia who are dealing with fires, for people who are victims of, of violence, for uh, people who are uh, the subject of animus or greed or any of the things that are a result of our broken world and broken order. And uh, finally, Lord, we, uh, we just pray that you continue to call our church in being faithful in prayer itself. And uh, please bless uh, uh, Lucia's efforts and, 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 and inspire us all to, uh, to work alongside her to make this a church of prayer and a church that, uh, that is constantly seeking you, not just in scripture and concept or in action, but also in, a, in, in relationship with you and help us to listen and to, uh, to, to have hearts that are supple and directed towards uh, your ends. We pray all those things, Lord God. Uh, 
And we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. God, as we come into this time of communion, we just open our hearts to you, our minds to you, our souls to you. We sit and silently, Lord, we uh, confess the places that we are aware of, that we have fallen short of what you've called us to do, or where we have not done uh, what uh, you've called us to do, or where we have done things, Lord, that uh, you asked us not to do. And for all the places beyond that where we are not aware of how we have sinned or rebelled or fallen short or, or been unable to hear and to respond to what you've called us to do, we just ask that you show us and search us, help us to confess to you uh, in transparency and honesty and all those things, God. Search us and show us the places where we are in need of your healing and your redemption. So we silently confess. So we confess together. Most merciful God, we confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, so that you may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Those who are uh, doing communion, come forward. 